Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. Welcome back to Pivot Point. Thank you for tuning in. You know, I usually go into some sort of, I don't know, rant about what's happening, what's going on in my world. But I got to tell you, I'm just not thinking about doing that today. I want to really get straight to the show. And here's why. I think during the pandemic, a lot of us are really looking deep within and doing a lot of that reevaluating, perhaps reinventing or wanting to reinvent yourself, switch tracks, change something, do something that's meaningful. And I want to go straight to the show today because my guest's journey has so much wisdom from his experiences as an artist in the ups and downs of his life. I found it to be encouraging. Um, you know, when you find out that you're not alone in the way you think, for me anyway, it somehow takes the edge off of some of the internal pressure you put on yourself or that you feel. Maybe you're not putting it on yourself. So, so who's my guest? My guest is Richard Human. That's with two N's, right? H-U-M-A-N-N. And Richard is an internationally known neoconceptual artist. You should go check his website out at richardhuman.com. Definitely check it out. One of the, well, I was going to say one of the things, but really here's two things I want to mention to you. The first one is that his first major solo art exhibition in New York was entitled Psycho Killer after the Talking Heads song. And you're going to be like, huh, what? So he got David Byrne's permission to take the lyrics of one of his songs and lay it out in Morse code, which I just thought was brilliant. So he created a sculpture, which he laid on the floor, and it was 20 feet wide by 30 feet long with the lyrics of Psycho Killer in Morse code. <laughs> I love that. The other thing that really hit my heart when I saw it on his website, it, it just froze me, is this piece of art called The Songbird Sings of Home. And he'll talk about it on the podcast, but I'm going to share it with you because I love it so much. Because of his travels all around the world, he has had these people that he's known write stories of themselves and their journey and send it to him. And then Richard cut it up and created a bird's nest out of it. I hope my description is doing it justice, but go to his website, richardhuman.com, and check it out. It's, uh, it moves me. I absolutely love it. So today's conversation, we go through all of the, the thought processes, the ups and downs of situations, and how do you handle that, and, and what happens next. Yeah. So here, everybody, jump on in, drink this up, earmark it, make this one of your faves. It's definitely one of mine. This is Richard Human and I chatting it up. Joseph. Hey, Richard. Hey, how are you? What's happening, man? How you doing? 
Good. How about yourself? Good. 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 Where are you located? I'm in California. I'm in Culver City. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah we've got a lot of wind today. Actually, uh, was it in the? Maybe it was in the 40s today. <laughs> really? Well, it's good. Believe it or not, we're warmer than you. Really? Today was like 72 up here. What? Yeah, I know. Global warming is a weird I thing, know. man. I know. It's messing everything up. It's totally it, it's, it's, up. I mean, I'm located in Brooklyn. We live in a firehouse in Brooklyn. I think and, that's um, so awesome. We have a house in Woodstock, my wife and I. You know, uh-huh. she's in the band American Nomads, and and uh, we're up. I'm upstate right now. She's actually in New York rehearsing. Okay. And uh, but I drove up this morning, and although the leaves are changing, it's uh-huh. like warm outside, That's sunny so and warm, and feels like an August day, and not like an October day. And yeah. meanwhile, in August, it felt like an October day in August. Really? Yeah. That's so bizarre. I because I grew up on the East <clears throat> Coast, and you know, I remember every now and again in the fall, you'd catch a couple of days that would be warm, but nothing like this. Yeah. Like you said, a couple of days and it's been, I mean, you, and again, you don't know what to dress. I, so living in Brooklyn, I just do the old test. I look out the window and see what other people are wearing. Right. <laughs> Cause you just have no idea what to wear. Right. And then like the other morning I went out early like seven o'clock to move the car which you know you have to do in new yeah. york right yeah and and uh it was cold so i had to go out the rest of the day i put like a nice sport jacket on and so forth with my jeans yeah and i was i had to take it off like i by the time i got to where i was going it was already 80 degrees outside oh my gosh so yeah. it's just been totally different you know global warming we've been talking about it since the late 90s and then this movie came out called The Day After Tomorrow. I remember was, it. I do too. It was one of my favorite movies. But they talk about what we are experiencing now. And it's the strangest thing to be living out what was talked about in the ni- late 90s, early 2000s. And it's not even that long ago, right? And mm-hmm. the thing is, what amazes me, and, and Yes, I'm an East Coast liberal, I confess, right? And this is the way I was raised, and that is it, and this is how I believe, and and I'm I'm not apologetic about it. But um, I don't understand even people who don't, let's say, believe in global warming. What do you have to lose Yeah, by cutting emissions or by making the steps? You know, gas pricing, we were just talking on the way up. I I was with the guitar player, George, from American Nomads. We're up here uh, in Woodstock. And, and, um, and... Basically, you know, the, there's a crisis going on right now in Britain after Brexit. There's yeah. they're running out of the running out of uh, of petrol, which you call gas and oil. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, what do you have to lose by attempting to make something better? Yeah, you know, it makes well, no sense to me. It doesn't for me either. And we have cleaner air. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, well, you're in LA. I remember, like, I was out in, and where were we? Um, Oh, Joshua Tree. Uh-huh. So we were out there, you know, a couple of years back. And, you know, that beautiful sunset you see from Joshua Tree is all the smog in L.A. Mm-hmm. But I remember in the, in the, you know, the 80s, what New York was like. When I first moved to New York in 1985, I would, every night you'd have to wipe the grime off your face. That doesn't really exist anymore in New York. Yeah. But that's because of stricter regulations. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. So you were in New York in 85. I think that's when I, that's when I got there. It was in 85 I, yeah, as well. I moved in March, March 1st, 1985 to New York city. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. being in Brooklyn. Well, no, I, well, I, well, when I say New York, I'm from upstate New York, a small town called Stony point. Okay. So, I mean, it's only, you know, 40, 50 miles away, yeah. whatever, but it's a million miles away. Oh, like you're either, if you remember, uh, what the electrical aid acid test about Ken Kesey, you know, and the, the one of them, you know, on the bus further, it, you're either on the bus, or you're off the bus. New York is like that, right? You're either on the bus in New York or you're off the bus. That's all there is. And, uh, you know, growing up, even within the, in the range of New York city, we were off the bus. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I fought my whole life to come to New York. I mean, you know, emotionally and mentally wanted yeah. to do it and financially and physically. And finally, after graduating college, a couple of years after I moved to New York city and began my art career, really. I mean, I had moved wow. to New York. Uh, I went to art college and then afterwards, you know, I, I floundered like, you know, had to move sure. back home, broke, you know, 
horrible, dark moments of my life. And then yeah. had the courage and somehow got it together and moved to New York City. And my life began. I, uh, March 1st is like my my baptism, you know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and my rebirth in a way, you know. Uh, oh, a secular I, rebirth. Secular rebirth. I know? totally understand. I want to hear more of that. Take me back a little bit. So you were born upstate. Yes. Were you into art then? Were you drawing? Yeah. Was there music? <laughs> Always, you know. What, what? I, I tell the story. I, I've been writing a book about my work and about everything. Like I tell the story when I was a kid, mm -hmm. I was about four. My grandfather, my mother's father, was in the service. He mm -hmm. he served in World War II on a on that USS Halligan destroyer that was uh, hit a Japanese sea mine. They lost 150 men out of mm -hmm. 300 died. He came back, but he was like like kind of my, my best friend, you know, like my role model, my dad, my yeah. dad was busy working. He was a young dad. So my grandfather was there and he, he taught me to draw. We used to draw ships on the water, very crude, right. And yeah. crayon, but with like, you know, seagulls. And one day when he was out, I was about four, I drew um, Noah's Ark and he came in the room and he's a big guy, you know, like a big guy with, with anchor tattoos on his arms. And he, he came over to me, put his head on my, my head. He put his hand on my head. He's like, you're going to be a famous artist one day. And he took the painting and put it on the wall. It was a draw, you know, and, and I believed him, you know, and yeah. I think from that point on, it was like, I had this interest in art and I went to private school. I went to private lessons when I was uh, seven for art. And then 13, and I went to art college after. So I was, it was always a part of my life, actually. You're blowing me away with this story. You no, know, it was always a part of my life. Yeah. Because it's still my passion to this day, all these yeah. many, many, many years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Um, <laughs> to have a grandfather see into you and really endow you with that, yeah. and, and you took it in. Yeah, I did. Every, every, every part of it. Isn't that amazing? That is that, you know, that's, kind, you know, this show is all about people's pivot points, big things that happened in their life that really changed the direction of their life. That was certainly probably the first pivot point in my life, I think. Unbelievable. And my wow. parents were very supportive. I mean, mm. my mom passed away 20 years ago. Uh, mm. My dad is still alive, but you know, all throughout the ups mm -hmm. and the downs and everything, very supportive in my life. So I would say the real pivot points in my life were that, right? Mm. That's what you would call like the inciting incident in a screenplay or in a sure, movie, sure, right? Sure, yeah. And then like the, the pivot point would be, you know, again, that moving into New York City, March yeah. of 1985 was really when everything began for me. So you know, what was as happening an adult before and that? As an well, you know, there was high school, of course, and I played sports in high school. And, you know, I went to North Rockland High School at that time. You know, I was somewhere between a jock and they called it head back then being into like Pink Floyd and so yeah. forth, you know, yeah. but you had to kind of hide, you know, or maybe it was me presupposing this, but you had to kind of hide your intellect. Like I would never tell my friends around a campfire drinking Budweiser beer from a keg that I was reading Dostoevsky or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like you just get beat up, you know what I right. mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, and then in high school, uh, you know, I I, um, I then went on to art college and then came out. I did some design work and and then, you know, again, floundered for, for two, about a year and a half, I guess it was. Yeah. Just moving, you know, you go to college and the world is open and it's big. And then you come back with student loans and broke. Mm -hmm. And I moved back into the, I, I lived on the third floor of my parents' house in the attic that was converted to like a big loft. Mm. And I ended up moving back into that loft, which was like the attic was my sanctuary, but I had to move back. And once you're out, it's, you know, Thomas Wolf, you can't go home again. Right. And you can't. Yeah. yeah. No. I and, know. and right. So here's my two references. I went from Tom Wolf, the electrocloid test to Thomas Wolf in one, one thing. But um, anyway, so then I, I, with my girlfriend, we moved into this small apartment, not far from where I grew up. And then finally we were like, we just have to go into, and I, I found this place in Brooklyn in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and have never left. I've been in Greenpoint now for 35 years, I guess. Wow. Holy 36. Cow. So yeah. while you were back living at home, were you feeling like this art thing is just a thing? I'm never going to do this, or I need to do this, 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 and this to make this art thing work. It, it was like, 
an early dark night of the soul. I was, mm-hmm. I knew I was miserable. I was depressed. I was penniless. I was, you name it. It was like the darkest. And yet the light of knowing I had to do this, it was never a question of if I wanted to, mm-hmm. it's it always was, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do, whether I'm good or bad, that's up to other people to decide. Mm. But for me, this is what I need to do. And I somehow harnessed and beat that depression and the pennilessness. And Mm. I mean, all those, you know, those things that hold back. Right. Mm -hmm. And I somehow was able to move into New York. I mean, now granted the apartment was only $400 a month back then. Right. Right. But you're only making a hundred bucks a week back then too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think I was bringing home $120 a week on my first job. Um, But then soon after I, I was in my first gallery show, I think about a month or two after I moved to New York, it was a group exhibition in a small gallery, but it was the beginning of the beginning. That's amazing. Where did you find that idea to be? Now I'm not, I'm not that familiar. So I may have the terms wrong, but it's like neoclassical or neoconceptual. Conceptual. Yeah. Yeah. Conceptual. Neoconceptual. Right. So here's another turning point. And since we'll stay on theme, um, I, when I moved to New York, I was kind of like a color field painter, like in the tradition of hard edge, like Ellsworth Kelly or, Mm. you know, Rothko did soft edge, but in the color field on canvas. And yet I always knew like I wanted more than that, but this is, I love the the physicality of stretching canvas and painting Uh it, but I was never truly a painter, even though I studied it for years and years. But one day I went to this show at the Whitney. It was the Jonathan Borofsky. who's a California guy. Uh Um, Jonathan Borofsky uh, retrospective at the Whitney. And I don't know what year that was. Maybe I I forget is around that time period though. Mm -hmm. And I hated it. I literally, it was like, he was just like, sloppy physical sloppy i'm a very you know anal retentive uh uh-huh. control freak right but his concepts were so genius mm. but i hated it and i re- i rebelled and but i kept going back and going back and going back to that show that's awesome <clears throat> and his it just hit me between that and donald judd's minimalism somehow mm-hmm. i found like this is where this is where I'm living. This is the home I'm living in between those kind of people, you know? <clears throat> and then again, from there, you, you do a bunch of things and you fail and constantly yeah. fail. And Joseph, I, I still fail constantly. Yeah, sure. With the, no. You know, and, you know, um, because I'm a composer and there are times I will yes. be asked to teach at UCLA and, and talk to other younger composers I, I think failing is so important and I, Agreed. and I really encourage them to get away from right and wrong. And I start, agree in the arts, there is no right or wrong. Right. And you, you start going after truth and sometimes, you know, it may have to be others truth if you're serving somebody. Sure. But is it your truth? Is it what you want to say? And as you looked at the things that you said you failed, was it because it you just weren't saying what you wanted to say? It didn't. That's come exactly that way? it. Right. It, it, lear- yeah. it took me a long time to learn that, uh, you know, early on I would have an idea, and then like if you're talking about composing, I would keep adding and adding and adding to my composition, which is a physical composition, mm-hmm. and instead of subtracting from it right to subtract to the truth i kept adding mostly out of fear i would think dude this is so awesome it's so right on and 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 it it, but it took me and you know something that's strange though i learned my lesson and then talk about going home years later after i had done my my a big solo exhibition which we had talked about which we may talk about I, i did a piece called psycho killer I got permission from David Byrne from the, from the talking heads to make this piece. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so years later, after I had done these solo exhibitions, I did this little show in Nyack, New York at the home of Edward Hopper. And because it was going home, everything I learned 
I threw out the window out of fear because I was like, oh, the people I grew up with won't understand real neoconceptual minimalism. And I started adding again and adding and adding and adding and created a monster of a piece that was just horrible. And I couldn't even go to my own opening. I went and I, I oh no, I, I went, I don't drink anymore. I'm a vegetarian. I don't do uh-huh. caffeine. This is just me. Right. But, um, Back then, I just at my opening, I'm like, I'm just going to the bar and drink. It was so I recognized it was so bad. I'm like, I'm. I'll see you guys later. I'm going. I didn't go to my own opening. I half the time I was just at the bar, uh, oh, and I gosh. learned the lesson from it. The lesson yeah. is be true to yourself. Like mm. always, be true to yourself. You know. I I love that you're talking about fear, because that's what gets in our heads. Of course. And it just and and you start second guessing. And it takes a lot of courage to let something just hang out there. It is still to this day, my biggest hurdle is to stop overwriting. Uh, it's the same with art. It, I, I'm a writer as well. Uh, and it's the same thing. It's you have to know when there's a cutoff point. Yeah. And, you know, after a while you're polishing something up, but you think you are, but all you're doing is really taking away from it. You're not. You're, oh. you're really taking away from the power of the work itself. Mm. The, the work that I like, whether it's a score or whether it's, you know, art or literature is the stuff that if, like a poetic sense, right? Mm-hmm. Poetry to me is, is, is beautiful because it, it conveys the message in a very short, easy to delivery system. Mm. And that's something that to me is very important as an artist as well, to be yeah. able to do that. I think yeah. that's so well said. I feel like even if I'm reading a book, it's really hard for me when there's so much description. Of- I agree. I agree with you. My, I agree. my joke, and this is just me making something up. It's like I opened the door, and the door creaked, and it reminded me of the bed creak of when I was ten. And I put one step down to go down into this dark alley, going down the steps, and it creaked too. And I'm like, just get down the stairs. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm the, just I'm get just down I, I into the basement. <laughs> I. I and I and I'm I read a lot, right? It's just it, it frees my mind. But there are books like Gravity's Rainbow, and I, granted, genius. But there, uh, you know, for me, it's like I'm. There's so much description, and then all of a sudden, like there's a talking dog, and I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> How did I get here? Magical you know? thinking. Here we exactly. Go. <laughs> but no, and and that's what it's like with art too. And so for me, the artists I've always admired again are like Donald Judd or Rothko or mm. people who have this like real, just beautiful sense of almost, and, and I'm not a religious person at all. You know, I'm really an atheist, I would say, but I don't want to say I'm an atheist because that's even that has a belief system in its own sure. way. Yeah. I'm yeah. just, I am what I am. Right. Yeah. But, you know, that's the closest I come to kind of like going to a church is going to a Rothko show or going to, you know, these really art, the artists have just perfected their craft like that, you know, mm-hmm. or, or the Apple store. One of those two things are the, the two things. <laughs> but, uh, the tech, no, the but, technical gadgets or. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, but yeah, so it's important. And failure is all in your head, right? Yeah. So you have to recognize it's okay. It's not necessarily negative, but you should learn from it to progress further. That's mm-hmm. what's very important about it. Mm-hmm. There's a less, and there's also lessons in success, also, right? But failure is a much better teacher. Mm. It just is, you know, because at least you can pinpoint. It's not always easy to understand why one particular piece did so well. Oh, who can? But you could definitely that? pick ten things why something failed. You know, why something didn't get any traction at all. Yeah. It's always amazing to me what people gravitate to and what they don't. Nobody is ever going to be able to know that. Like, I, I agree. It's like, is this a hit? This is who knows what it is. It just exactly. is it is it true? Do you like it uh, for yourself? When you were like, so you know, you did the thing with David Byrne, and I love the idea that you did this. The lyrics into Morse code. I thought that was so cool. For me, I, w- I was kind of like coding things. And mm-hmm. so I had done like Shakespeare and things like that. And, 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 and David doesn't know me from Adam, I'm sure. In fact, yeah. David ran into me literally 
about a year ago on his bike almost. He like, it, I crossed the path in Soho. I was in Soho and, you uh-huh. know, he's a big bike rider in the city. And he came out of somewhere, got on his bike and I crossed in front. And he, I heard like, and it was his brakes. I turned around, it was David Byrne. I didn't even say anything. Because right? he had, he also purchased three of my pieces, right? So he owns right. three of my works. But you know, New York, I'm like, I just like stepped aside, and he, went, I didn't say anything because we don't say anything to anybody in New York, right? Right. But um, especially famous people, they live their lives, and you know, we live ours, right? But um, I just happened to be at an opening at the MoMA, and a, a, a mutual friend of David's and mine, and he was like quietly in a corner, and I just happened to be there. I was on my way to Toronto the next day for a solo for an exhibition. And I had just received this big solo exhibition opportunity. And I was like, hey, um, I'm translating work into Morse code. I love Psycho Killer. Is it cool if I translate that? He's like, oh, I love the idea. And he sent me a letter that said, you have my permission to translate oh, Psycho nice. Killer into Morse code. And went ahead and built it. And, and um, I mean, I have a crazy story about that. The woman who bought it, multi-billionaire, owns a private island in the Bahamas and Wow. flew me down i mean that's 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 like two hours you would have to carve two hours up for this story wow she's a collector she was a collector of mine but she bought the piece eventually and um but you know again so when i do that work i look back that's 1998 mm. my work is not that now right mm-hmm. i'm sure there are like you with composing variations on the theme mm. but it's not like I don't identify with that particular work anymore. That's a part of me mm-hmm. and I've grown from there, but that's how work is. You know, you, you know, Beethoven's first symphony sounds like Mozart and his ninth symphony sounds like Beethoven. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how you go. And, and um, so anyway, that's, that's what it's like with that. So it was, it was wonderful to, you know, have that opportunity. That was my first really big solo exhibition in New York mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was, was that psycho killer piece. You know, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. After that, uh, did it more opportunities open up, or is it a, an ebb and flow? Like in our world here in film, you know, you can do a film and it can do well, but you might not compose another project for maybe a year. <laughs> it depends on what, <laughs> or, or maybe never, right? Or, or maybe I mean, never. I remember the reading the Scorsese thing about after he had done Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, he couldn't work. And the story is he he did uh, oh god what's the one where the guy gets lost after hours remember he's yeah. lost in Soho uh, Griffin Dunn right and they did that on a shoestring budget because he couldn't find a job anywhere this is after the biggest movie in I, the history of the world at that time right I, I, yeah we have the same thing that opened up opportunities for me I, the gallery that I showed was picked me up they, so I became uh, in their uh, um, stable of artists after that sure. and i went from there to my next solo exhibition and ended up showing you know i did a show with andy warhol like the like right after that and then mm. uh, i got into the venice biennale 2003 and then my relationship with that gallery ended at the biennale and got picked up by another gallery but it's certainly an ebb and flow i mean trust me you have to be prepared for the my life i'm like a an operatic roller coaster ride is what I live on. That's how yeah. I live still yeah. to this day. No, I get that. I totally understand. There are times when you're just working and things are great. And then there are times when you just start wondering, is my career over? Have I been? <laughs> no, I know. Trust me. <laughs> that usually happens at four o'clock in the morning. When oh, you yeah. Have that thought. Yes, of course. Exactly. Of course. And I joke about also, you know, I tell this and it's true though, but you know, the house in Woodstock, uh, you know, we're up, I'm upstate right now. <clears throat> I bought in 1995 in cash. Mm-hmm. I happened to have a great year. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, I didn't, couldn't afford gas money to drive up to my house. Oh my gosh, I mean, that, dude. No, I'm exaggerating what? slightly, but not much. Yeah. <laughs> and no. that's how life is. You, I, I remember also in 2000, I got my first New York times review uh-huh. and I got like art in America, New York times. And I remember thinking like, all this pile on these art in America, all these magazines, New York Times is the top of the top. Yeah. I didn't have another one. I was like, well, I can really get used to this. I didn't get one for 20 more years. <laughs> you know, that's you, that's and you know, I've done solo museum exhibitions and and I've, you know, cut down trees for 50 bucks for that's just how your life is. You have to be prepared for that. How let's talk about that for a minute. 
you have to be prepared financially the best you can. I get, you yes. know, you want to save a lot for the rainy day. Right. Um, how do you prepare for the emotional roller coaster? And how do you also self encourage? Uh, I'm um, okay. How do you prepare? You really can't, right? It's mm. it's not for the faint of heart. It just mm. isn't, right? And not everybody. It's not cut out for everybody. It just isn't. You, uh, I'm married. I have a great. My wife's a great partner of mine. We, she's in American Nomads, as I mentioned. So we're both in the same kind of life. Yeah, and, same roller coaster. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes we pass each other on the roller coasters, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But. So you have to, if you're with somebody, uh, man, woman, partner, it, it really helps if you're with somebody who understands who you are and what you are, right? Mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. life you live. Um, if you're on your own, then you just have to just let yourself understand that, you know, when you have money and I've had lots of money, I've, I've also had a Porsche, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I've had a Porsche. Now I'm driving a, uh, I've got a, a, a an old Chevy Silverado. Uh, and that's just how it works. And you just have to, when you're, when you have money, you have to kind of live the same way as if you don't. Mm -hmm. Here's the good news. When I've had money, my life is not really much different than when I don't have money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really affect how I live my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, not really into a lot of possessions. It, my, all my money really filters back into the creation of my work itself. Mm -hmm. And that's the part I think is the most difficult. I'm in a lucky position or luckier than a lot of people. A lot of my projects are funded. You know, mm -hmm. I travel internationally. I've shown in Korea, I've shown in South Africa and Russia and Germany and France and Spain and yeah, England. I mean, you name it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Literally, my work has been there, and I lived in Taiwan. I lived, I lived in wow. Venice, Italy, and you know, uh, in, in in the Arctic Circle, I've Helsinki, and a lot of that's all been funded. And I'm luckier than most with that. Mm -hmm. But I'm also the type of guy that, if I'm getting fifty thousand or sixty thousand for a project, I spend fifty one thousand of the fifty, you know, yeah. on the work itself. Yeah, that's just how your life is. Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. You know, when you have these projects that happen from other countries, yes, I guess the question I'm asking is: Are you having to put on the business hat yourself and try? I have to an art dealer. I have an art dealer. It's both. Yes, and I also have an art dealer as well. Okay. Yes, I was both. wondering how that is because sometimes we have to do the same thing. You know, we have to be out there hustling, meeting, networking, talking to people. I, I tell people 90% of my jobs come from relationships, people I know. No doubt. Is it the same way, like for you to get somebody to give an, a, a, a grant or prepay for a, um, a show with the hopes that the pieces would sell? Is that how you how that business works like well so may in the old days it probably did but it mm. doesn't exist that much anymore where where a gallery will take you on and and give you a stipend or to be able oh. to create the work so my my shows like that are generally from uh, museums where museums are paying you for the exhibition mm. or organizations or i also got the paula krasner grant which is a thirty thousand dollar grant and that's just for you know it, that's like a consolation for just being in the business for so long. You know what I mean? You, you apply, it's like, all right, you earned it. You've been here for 30 years. You're good. There you go. Um, thousand dollars a year. Exactly. But you know, so, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, again, through being there, being mm. in the field every day, working, meeting people. Uh, but no, you are, you're building your stuff on spec. If I'm showing for a gallery exhibition, mm -hmm. I'm paying for my own work to be built and then showing at that gallery. But you also, it's educated showing at a gallery that you know has track record of mm. selling your work or connecting yeah. you. And, you know, my gallery has been very good in, in connecting me internationally with a lot of different projects. So many museum exhibitions and gallery shows and also residencies. Mm -hmm. Resident, I don't know if you do residencies or not, like art residencies. I've done a few and I've enjoyed them. You know, I haven't. My wife's also a composer and she's also uh, an author and right. uh, a, a poet. 
And she's done a couple of writing residencies. She, did she go to Yaddo? No. Uh, she should. I was at Yaddo a few years back, and it is it's the top of the top, in my oh, yeah? opinion. But okay. Yes, I mean, it's composers. Like, I don't know if you know Richard Daniel Poor. Richard was there. I don't um, know the name, no. He's, he's a, a, a more of traditional uh, Juilliard type of composer. Not, mm-hmm. not Nothing to do with film or contemporary, basically. Uh-huh. But um, really great guy, great guy. But Yaddo was, uh, it's like, because I've been to residencies where you just like, Here's your key. See you in a month. Good luck. Hope you yeah. survive. <laughs> you know, I've yeah. been that way. <laughs> but, but you go to Yado and it's, you're just surrounded by really well-known writers and poets and composers and musicians and artists. And you have like your own living space and your studio and you meet for breakfast and you get breakfast and they give you your lunch and you go to your studio and nobody can knock on your door during the day. It's mm. like monastic during the day. And then you get together at the mansion for dinner every night with their chef. It's like, it's the top of the top. It's Y A D D O. It's a really, I I recommend that for anybody to have like a month to be able to go and try that place. My gosh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was, and I bought, but again, I've gone to others. I, I, Emily Harvey in Venice, Italy. I was there for a couple months, like living in, in Venice, like at the foot of the Rialto bridge and, this opportunity from and also Himmelblau and and uh, Gyeonggi Creation Center and Samji, these are opportunities to be able to shut the world out. Mm-hmm. Some of them actually pay you. To, I've been paid to go to these things, and how nice it's show you shut the world out. And for six weeks, you could pretend that the electric bill isn't happening and your car insurance yes. and all those. Yeah, you shut the whole world out and you just create. You know, mm-hmm. it's the way life should be. Everyone, every artist should have that in their life at least once in a while. You know, know, it's so funny. I think like the pandemic, when it first started, it's very difficult to talk about it being any kind of goodness that comes out of it. But there was a part of it for me where because there was no work, quote unquote. I understand. Yes. I did not feel the urge to have to keep on looking for the work. Instead, I could hunker into the work of my own. Uh, that's how I started writing the book about my travels because I, I, I had a show in, in Dubai, uh, in Italy, North of Milan and Karachi, and, uh, they all got canceled. And, and so everything was shut down. Those are my sources of income. And after you, you know, crawl into a bowl and cry a little bit, you kind of stand up like, okay, what am I going to do now? And we Uh went to the house in Woodstock and, it just gave me this kind of, it was like a forced residency is what it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I had, I stopped looking cause it didn't exist. And I started, I started looking, I stopped looking outward and started looking inward mm. is what it was. Now you just really hit on something because so many people, because of the pandemic, because everything slowed down, it, it took away all the distractions of life and caused people to start really looking inward. And yes. some people wrestle with that. Oh, a lot of people don't want to look inward, you know? No. And I think that's partly why some people like the arts in general is because it helps them mirror back a bit of themselves. Mm. When, when it all happened, I know so many people have made so uh, lots of changes in their life. Well, I do too. Many people I know are not the same before the pandemic. Uh, you know, most for the better to be honest yes, with you. Yes, yes. You know, most for the better, honestly. Yeah, lots of self-reflection. Yes. One of your pieces, I was on your website the other day and I saw this and I, I want to make sure I get the name correct. It's the, I think it was Singing Bowls or, or, or Nests. Nests? Oh yeah, the uh, the Songbird Sings of Home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where you reached out to people and they all sent their story in their original language and yes. then you made these bird nests. Yes, they're 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 made from a a material that's it's a um it's an acid free material. It's not paper. It's like a, a poly something or other. I I in my travels, like you talk about, I I I meet people from all over the world, and I love these people. Yeah, I, I'm really the kind of person that when I go somewhere in Taiwan, I just there are people I still exchange gifts with on their birthday mm. and they exchange gifts with me from Taiwan to I mean, Italy to China to Korea. I mean, people I've, that are close to my heart and these people, I, you know, 
and I see the differences in their life. When I, when I was up in the Arctic Circle with the Sami people up there, they're not different than us. Yeah, it's 30. But when I landed, it was 35, <laughs> 35 below zero uh-huh. and, and, you know, dark 24 hours a day. So there are differences. But, you know, ultimately, we're all the same, right? We're, we have this home experience, this experience growing up with our family, our parents, and mm. how we were taught and the, the yearning that we have in life. And I ask people to just tell me stories of their home written in the language that they, they grew up with. And I got works from all over, and then I printed them and cut them and wove them into bird's nests. Mm. And, and there's a metal uh, armature, which is a branch that comes off the wall, and you can look inside there, and, and there's a physical manifestation of these stories all interwoven together, the way a bird would weave something from yeah. here and from there. Yeah. And, that, and that's the piece I created with it's it. So and it, it means something to me, you know? Oh, gosh. It, it really leapt off the page for me. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, um, because I love people's stories. That's why I do this show. There was this show, the the germ of this show goes all the way back. Well, there's two big areas. One was when I was a child, growing up in an Italian household, we had relatives over and they did what I called coffee talk. They hang out, have coffee, and they talk. Right. And I, I used to love sitting around the table and just listen. I, I grew up in the same household. My my dad was from German descent. My mom was Italian, Calabrese. Mm. And we grew up early on in their, my grandparents' household. And it was just like that. The kitchen was the center of the universe. Uh-huh. And yeah, everybody exactly. was there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was so same great. Thing. So from there, when I got older, I was in my 30s and I had a production company. I lived in Nashville then and I had a film production company. And... um one of the shows we developed uh, but couldn't get off the ground was called Wisdom of the Elders, where mm. I wanted to go around and interview people 80s and up and hear their stories. What's their wisdom? You live 80 years. You, you know something. Something, you know. And, um, and I'm, I'm fortunate. Uh, my grandmother lived to be 98. And her sister is now, gosh, is my auntie Jenny, 97. Wow. But they've seen things, you know? They know things. Like, um, So from there, that's when I did this show. I mean, they saw coming out of the first pandemic, right, 1917, but they experienced prohibition, two world wars. I mean, you name it. Yeah. Flight, the first man on the moon. I mean, they saw everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Amazing, right? To, to the point where they're now using um, <clears throat> iPads. Exactly. I know. I know. My, my wife's mom is 85 <laughs> or something like that, and she uses the iPad. Now, to play solitaire, but still she's using yeah. an iPad. <laughs> well, yeah. And my mom's in her 80s, and she does her iPad, and we Zoom. Uh, and right. That's why I tell my wife I want to live to be at least a hundred, and she's like, "No, I'm." <laughs> <laughs> I said that to my sister-in-law over the weekend. She just waved me off. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to be able to say I've seen all of these things happen. You know, no, no, it's you know, it's funny because I mentioned living in Korea. I lived on an island called Debudo for a residency, but I've been there multiple times for exhibitions and and. When you go to Korea, which I, I think is a fascinating country, just mm. fascinating to me. And we've, I've been up to the DMZ, walked through the tunnels, and we, I put a piece over the DMZ where we got brought in by the, by the army because it was illegal for us to do this. This was just two years ago, right? And, but to, to go into what you're talking about, the first question when you're around people, the first question they ask you is, how old are you? Yeah. Like in America, if you get asked that question, you're offended, right? Yeah, yeah. In Korea... They do it because it establishes a hierarchy. And the older you are, the more respected you are. Yeah. So if you had done your show in Korea, it would probably be a massive hit. <laughs> it's just yeah. counterintuitive or, or to our culture about mm-hmm. that. We, we, we praise and idolize youth here. Yeah. Where other cultures will, you know, praise and idolize age and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem that we're living in right now. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's a problem. It's a reality, I should say. I'm not saying it's a problem. It's a reality, yeah. you know? 
it is it is our reality i it's it's hard to feel as you get older um some in some ways not valued your I know. opinion doesn't seem to be valid or inconsequential perhaps it's very strange just because of an age thing well the good news is for us at least is that composers will create some of their best work at the later part of their lives artists architects begin they're infants in their 50s and they're they're adolescent in their 60s in architecture. Yeah. So there are some of professions, creative professions that are accepted, right? You kind of it, it's kind of like acting, I guess, right? Where you're very young and you get into things, then you go from like your 30s to your 60s with not a job. And then you start getting jobs again in your 60s to your 80s. And that's kind of like what we could be like. If you don't make it up before a certain point, you kind of hope for the other part, like later on, you know? And yeah. I know I've noticed a lot of actors can be that way too. I mean, they yeah. have supporting roles in, in their forties and fifties, but right. very few are doing lead role men, but very few women, unfortunately, are doing yes. lead roles in, in uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. I understand Which is that. utterly ridiculous. Ridiculous. It yeah. is. It's, it's a, uh, it is ridiculous. It is. Um, I mean, do I want to use the word wrong? It's just not right, I guess. It, not right. I agree with you. I you agree. Know? But, but, but again, as an artist, though, you know, I can try to point to so many artists over 55, you know, in there who really opened up. And because what happens, I think, as you get older, you have this wisdom, but maybe you shed a lot of the things that bind us mm. in terms of caring or self-doubt or self-deprecation. And I think maybe you can become a little more childlike. And if you can become more childlike, that is at the root of our work, right? Mm. I mean, you know, as artists in, in all genres, aren't we really trying to capture that inner child in us, that inspiration, that spark that first brought us here? That's what we're trying to do all the time mm. with the knowledge of how to create. Mm -hmm. So if you can capture that, that original spark of inspiration with all those 50, 60 years worth of knowledge on how to do it, you've got something beautiful. And that's what I'm hoping to, to do with my life. You know, as I get older, I'm already old now, but as I even get older, I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say your age, but I'm one year uh, older than you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> we can say my age. I'm, yeah. I, again, I keep going back to Cree here because I'm recircling, you know, on, on these things. But I remember the first time I, I went to Korea, the first time, I guess I was like in my 30s, but in my, not my most recent trip, one of those trips, I was like 54. And you, you're on the bus ride in, in Seoul and, and somebody comes up to you like, how old are you? I'm like 54. And hearing it come from my own mouth was like, what? I, I couldn't believe it, you know? Yeah. And the only time I ever feel it at all is when I'm signing on to something new. Like when you do that roller, like you're, like you're, you're doing like a, and you're like, you yes. go back, you're going backwards on the uh -huh. roller. Like, on, you know, like, Oh does my it keep, God. How far does it go? Does it go all the way? I know. It's like, a, it's true. It's like a speedometer, just like traveling <laughs> through space. But, uh, but that's that's oh the only time I feel it. Otherwise, I'm okay. I'm I'm healthy. Like I said, I don't. You know, physically, I take care of myself. I don't drink. Yeah. I don't smoke. And I've done everything in the world. You name it, I've done it. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, you know, I don't even do. I haven't had a cup of coffee in 25 years. So I'm like oh, a wow. very, like, you know, yeah, pretty health conscious guy. You know, it's really important. I think uh, what we put into our bodies is going to help the machine work. Agreed. And, uh, yeah. and if I'm putting in fast food, that's all full of these chemicals. It's not the stuff as opposed to like Tuesdays is our farmer's market day. I mean, we right. go there and get all of our, all of our vegetables and fruits and, you know, just great food. And I we're the same way. And we're, I mean, I we're, well, granted, we're lucky you're living where you live. I live in New York. It's, it's easier. And even my weekend house in Woodstock, it's easy to do that. Right. And, yeah. and we take advantage of that. We yeah. really take advantage of it, but you know, it's, it's important to be conscientious about it early on when I was young, I always thought, Oh, you, you have to live like, uh, like Jim Morrison or Charles Bukowski. You have to live that Bukowski life. Let me go down. And I, 
I've been in bar fights. I've been tossed mm. out of bars from my belt and all this stuff like that early on, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, even spent a night or two in the clink, to be honest with you back then. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, maybe more than a night or two, but, but, you know, I real you realize early, like that's now the Bukowski was an anomaly. That is yeah. not how we should be. We don't need to be, you know, a drunk or a fighter or something like that to be able to write. It's inside of you. You know, mm-hmm. that's just what Bukowski was like. And he was a genius for the way he was a genius. But Tolstoy was a teetotaler and he was equally, if not more, a genius. Right. It's just mm-hmm. it's who you have to understand who you are as a person mm-hmm. and, and run with that, you know. Yeah. And accept it. Totally accept it. And it's hard to do. I mean, oh it's hard gosh. sometimes to accept us as ourselves. Just is. Yeah. It's hard it, for me. Yeah. You know? It's hard for me too. It's yeah. a struggle, a constant struggle to have the aspects of myself that I'm really happy about mm-hmm. and to feel just as happy about that of the aspects that I don't like about myself. Right. And it's hard to bring in that love and acceptance, but that is the place from which the creativity comes, that expression, that exploration. It, it's honestly the truth. And, uh, you know, again, I use the expression a lot of Louis Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind, right? And it mm-hmm. does. And chance favors, but chance favors the prepared life. Mm-hmm. And that is in all aspects. And I often get asked, I'm sure you do as well, like, how do you, where does your inspiration come from? You know, is it an epiphany? Yeah, sometimes it's an epiphany. Sometimes I'm on the subway or driving in my car and instantly see the whole piece. But, you know, it's as, I don't know who said this, it's either Woody Allen or whatever, but it's, you know, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And it's just the truth. It is. It's living the life every day every single day of your life mm-hmm. and re- not giving up and only you can defeat you. Nobody else can defeat mm-hmm. you. You're mm-hmm. going to get turned down by everything you apply for. You just are. It's just the way it is. I don't even take it to heart anymore. I, when I apply for something, whether it's grants or whether it's opportunities, I, I set and forget. I send it. I spend my day or two filling out the forms and, and then I just forget about it. And if mm-hmm. it happens, I'll, I'll get, oh, I've just been turned down, big deal, or I get it. It's like, great. That's yeah. it. You know? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned something like that because that is the life. You know, you create, you submit, you say, here, I made this, and that's as that's far it. as we, we can go. <laughs> <laughs> Make it and let other people tell you whether it's they like it or they don't like it or if it's good or bad. You just keep making it, you know? And did that come, this lesson come to you the hard way or just gradually through life? You know, I think, I think both, both the easy way and the hard way. I, I started realizing like when I got things, yeah. When I got the Paula Krasner, when I got my first museum show and I remember getting off, well, not my first actually, but maybe it was a couple of museum shows later. So I remember getting off the airplane and in the back of the car that picked me up at the airport and seeing going past the museum and seeing my name on the banners they put outside, like that was great, but it wasn't like this. Oh, oh my God, this is what I worked for my whole life. Right. And when I get turned down by something, it hurts a little bit, but it didn't, it's not devastating. Just starting to realize it doesn't move the needle so far in a direction either way, the victory or the defeat. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the ones that are like, when uh, I somebody had called me, they were in some lecture at some university in Tennessee or something, and they con- they happened to be at the lecture. I'm like Richard, they're they're teaching you, they're teaching about your work here, and I was like, wow, now that moves the needle for me. Yeah, yeah, you know that that moved it for me. So it's just that. both the the defeats, the victories, and just the overall mm-hmm. the mundane as well taught mm-hmm. me how to tell me this, you know? Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, and yourself, you've had some great success too. Well, thank you. Yes. I've had some success. Yeah. And, um, and for me, it was, uh, I did have a, a bit of disillusionment. That's how it came to me thinking that, Oh, okay. I've, I've broken through the fabric and, um, interesting. And it, it was no such thing. 
Well, it's funny, first off, that you say that because I always use the expression piercing the veil. So we're both yes. talking the same way, right? Yes. yes. It's not crashing the wall. There's no crashing the wall. It's piercing the veil is what yeah. it is. It's a small, it's a little delicate thing that you might miss if you actually aren't paying attention. Right. But I felt the same way. It's like, oh, I've worked my whole life and I'm like, I'm still in the hotel by myself watching Trek in, you know, Urdu. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I totally understand. Yeah. And this is the way it is. I'm by myself, eating by myself, looking out the window, Shrek's on, and it's in Urdu and I'm in Karachi. And that's really cool. But it wasn't like, you know? Right. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like in the movies where you're showered in champagne pours yes, and the, it right. wasn't like that at all. And yeah. I've had those moments too, and they don't really mean much, you know? They don't because they're, they, they pass. It, it, it's just a moment. Exactly. And so that experience has taught me to um, go with whatever the flow is. If it's, got, if it's a, a bigger project, that's great. Let's have that experience. Yes. If it's a smaller project, okay, let's have that experience. If I didn't get a project, okay. Um, you know, Next. I have a friend who always listens to this show. Exactly. That's exactly what he always says. We'd always have these philosophical talks, but when something is over, be it you did it and it was great or it didn't work out at all, he just says, next. That, that it's the same with me. It just it has to be that way. And I, I talk to you on, because I lecture, I don't teach. I've, mm -hmm. I've often, you know, first off, I don't, I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I left college after I, I graduated with an associate degree in, in art. And I figured mm -hmm. I want to get into the world. I really want to get my fingernails dirty. And I took classes here and there. So I probably have these non-matriculated credits that maybe could each equal something one day, but I never, well, mm -hmm. come on. So I, it's not, it never changed my life. And, you know, but I've lectured at master's programs, right. Yeah. At, at, at Brown and so forth. So I couldn't even be a student at half the schools that I lecture at. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just the way it works out in life. But, you know, I always tell the people exactly what you're talking about. It's like, you know, they'll ask me, how do you define success? And it's not a lot what we've been taught. Mm. It's not buying the Ferrari or, what it is is really like the spring in your step on the way home from the studio at night. You know, your ass is either dragging or you're walking briskly, feeling good about life. And that is how you judge success. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, it's just the way it is. It's about your work. Mm -hmm. It's not about the riches or the, the, the cost of what it costs to make your work. Yeah. It's about what you feel about your work and what you've put into it and what you're getting out of your own work to me is makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, with Woodstock, I don't know if you saw on the site, I just, what's today? Today is Tuesday. So uh, four days ago or five days ago, Thursday evening, I made a little film called Caged. And that was, I originally premiered in Pakistan and then was just projected onto the Manhattan Bridge on Thursday evening. Oh, through wow. white uh, through a, a gallery called white box projected yeah. it and i so during the pandemic as a composer you must know john cage you know sure. and uh, uh so it 433 his the i always say the infamous 433 the the fourth minutes and 33 seconds of silence premiered in 1952 in woodstock new york that was the premiere at the maverick concert hall up the road from my house and, and, um, when I was in Woodstock, it was always this weekend respite. And mm. well, but when I was there for three or four months, when the pandemic hit, I started hearing the rain on the roof and the chipmunks eating the peanuts and, uh, oh my and, and, and I started yeah. thinking about the John Cage piece. And so I started filming my daily life up there, making a peanut butter sandwich or all these things that the sound of the, the water boiling. And, and uh, so I made a, a movie four minutes and 33 seconds long. I, I filmed it. George LaGrange who's also an American nomads. He did the editing. I would mm -hmm. send him every day. We transfer files at the end of each day. Uh -huh. And he cut, he cut together a three movement piece. Uh 
That's four minutes, 33 seconds long, cold cage, the double entendre, of course, John Cage and being caged for the <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. And uh, we just showed that again this week. So oh, I'll send you fantastic. a link to it. It's, not, it's uh, on my on my Vimeo. I think it's private, but I'll send you a link to it. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. John Cage knew what he was talking about when he did this, you know, 50 years ago. Well, that's the thing. When I first heard about it, I thought um, it actually made me a little angry because I felt like uh, he was just duping everybody. Yeah, but, I felt this when I first heard too. And then I'm like, I, okay, I get it. Uh, you know, it's so funny because he took what he did very seriously, right? So the the gallery that picked me up in 98 was kind of connected with the, the Fluxus movement. And the Fluxus movement is... Nam Trim Pike, Shigeko Kubodo, uh, oh my God, there's just uh, Allison Knowles and 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 um, any, anyway, but so there's so many fluxes, right? But so one of my, you know, Cage took his stuff seriously. There's the piece that takes like a hundred years to play one note a day for a hundred years, and there's the one in Berlin that took five years to perform. But he took it seriously. Mm. But my favorite Nam Trim Pike piece, and I showed in the same gallery with Nam Trim. A very, really wonderful pioneer mm. video artist was a piece that he did where he went up on stage and uh, ready to perform his his act. And John Cage is in the audience wearing a suit and tie. And Nam June, when he started, ran off the stage with a pair of scissors, cut cut John Cage's tie in half, and ran out and never came back. And that was the piece, which I think is brilliant. But. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, like John Cage got really pissed off about it, <laughs> you know. So it's like he he got caged by his own his own yeah. work, you know. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that story. That's amazing. Yeah. Holy cows! Yeah. So anyway, I, was still, I mean, those guys were and and geniuses and true pioneers. And yeah, we people our age know the the '60s movement. You know, the music of the '60s and the art and but. Just the beat poets and the, the pioneers before these mm -hmm. guys were also, they were mm -hmm. prophetic with what they did. They really mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. you know, prophetic. I think there's a, a level of courage to be prophetic. And there's also a level of, I must. Well, that's what it is. It's the truth. Know? It is, I must. Exactly. And we're back right to where we started this conversation off with. And that is, so true. that's what it is. I must. That's. Yeah. I'll, I'll get a tattoo of that, you know. Oh my this god! Is That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, and it's what it is. Right? That's a brilliant idea. Get it on your chest in reverse when you look <laughs> in the mirror every morning. <laughs> Maybe do it in Latin so it sounds really smart. Right. I would probably try it in Italian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're fine. You're. It's Latin roots, so you're good. Exactly. You're good. You're good. Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time, man, to be on the show. One last question. What's sure. happening now? What what what's what what you got going on? Well, you know, climbing out of the the hole right here, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so things are beginning to open up. The show that was canceled in, in Italy supposedly is back again. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm working on that. Uh that is a Back to the songbird piece, it's kind of a, a musical composition I'm doing. And these are just conceptual ideas. Mm. So that piece is right now just I'm titling it in studio called Suburbia. And what I've done is I've gone to homes and recorded the sounds of doors creaking or the, the fridge opening and all the sounds that a home makes and putting together uh, bird calls with the sounds of a home. And that would that is a piece that will be projected uh, in in a space in Italy. So there are like songbird sounds of the home itself, like calling people to the home, like comfort, and that's that's the piece I'm doing right now. Love that. That's Thank awesome. you. Thank yeah. you. And just back that. again, just get you know, as musicians say, I'm I'm just going to the woodshed every day. That's all I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. Awesome, Richard. Thanks so much, man. This Joseph, thank you. Really, man. really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's been a thrill. Really, really thank you. And reach time. out anytime. We, you know, Ken has our contact. So please, anytime, let be in touch. Let's 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 stay in touch. Mm -hmm. I would love to let you know what's going on in my life, and the same with you. Seriously, I think that would be awesome. I love it. Cool. That's really great. Cool. You know, <laughs> after every podcast, I'm pretty sure I go something like, "Right," and I got to tell you, this one really. 
It really hits home for me. I appreciate Richard's honesty, his humanity, his vulnerability about his journey. You know, you have these ups and downs. Some years you make great money, some years you don't. And I love how he has worked on himself to really stay focused on the process mindset, not the project mindset. You know that black hole <laughs> that that we all tend to want to go down of why isn't this happening the way I want it and why didn't I get that the way I wanted? I really appreciate the vulnerability here. It really is an encouragement to me and I hope it has been for you. All right, next week, my guest will be singer, musician, and attorney, Alan Chappelle. Yeah, check that one out next week. All right, in the meantime, remember, if he's doing it, why not you? <laughs>